Hi everyone. Thank you for tuning in again today, really trusting and praying that God through his Holy Spirit would come and speak to us very personally and deeply through his word today. We're continuing through our sermon series through the book of First Peter, and we come again to First Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7. Last week we had a look at the broad vision for marriage that Peter paints in this passage, and this week we'll look at the specific situation that Peter is addressing in these verses. Peter is speaking to wives and husbands here, and so there are some general principles that apply to all Christian marriages. But then Peter is particularly concerned for Christian wives who have unbelieving husbands and Christian husbands who have unbelieving wives. This week I'd like to look at the specific situation that Peter addresses, and then next time we'll consider the application that Peter makes to Christian marriages more generally. In the Roman Empire, it was expected that a wife would follow her husband's religion. The philosopher Plutarch, who lived in the first century, wrote, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in, and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. For a wife not to worship her husband's gods was considered to be a threat to national security. The family unit was seen to be the building block of society, and any disunity within it was a threat to the good of society as a whole, not to mention the danger in bringing disaster on the empire by offending the traditional gods. If a husband's wife started worshipping Jesus Christ, he would have considered that to be an act of rebellion. If people outside of the household heard about it, he would have experienced embarrassment and criticism for not properly managing his household. This could have seriously damaged his social standing and prevented him from receiving certain honours or offices within the empire. On the other hand, if a husband started worshipping Jesus and his wife refused to do so, that too would have brought embarrassment on the husband for not properly managing his household. Maybe his wife would have formally gone along with his worship of Jesus, but have secretly felt ashamed and demeaned by his association with what was, in reality, a despised religion within the Roman Empire. So what were Christian wives and husbands to do in that situation? Well, this is what Peter addresses in the first part of chapter 3. Our main focus again will be on verses 1 to 7, but I think the broader context of these verses is very important for us to understand. And so we'll read from verse 21 of chapter 2 all the way through to chapter 3 and verse 15. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is God's Word. What do we do in a less-than-perfect marriage? In particular, what do we do when we have an unbelieving spouse? Perhaps you married a man or a woman who is not a believer. Perhaps both of you were unbelievers when you got married and then you came to faith in Christ and your spouse has not yet done so. Or maybe you live in a spiritually mismatched marriage where you have grown in your relationship with Jesus so that he is a living presence in your everyday life, while your spouse is content merely to come along to church every so often. Or you may be in a situation similar to the one I read about this past week, where a lady met a man at Bible college, they were married for some years, and then he renounced his faith altogether. How are we to live in situations like these? 
I realize that perhaps some of you listening in today may not be married at all, but I'd urge you to keep listening, because what Peter says here may be of use to someone that you know, and also some of the things that Peter says here are helpful in other difficult family and relational situations too. I think it's important to say right up front that Peter is addressing men and women who have come to faith in Jesus while their marriage partners have not. Peter is not giving this advice to men and women who are contemplating marrying an unbeliever. For that we would have to quote from Paul's famous words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? You see, the reality is that if you marry someone who is not a believer, you will always be out of sync with your marriage partner, and you'll always be torn in one of two directions. Either your commitment to Jesus will draw you away from your husband, or your commitment to your husband will draw you away from Jesus. Your marriage partner will always have very different ideas about vital things like a devotional life, hospitality to believers, either meals with other Christians or small group studies, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers. And God wants to spare you from all of that. Please don't think that because Peter gives some practical steps for loving an unbelieving spouse, that this is easy and always results in a happy ending. Ask any godly Christian man or woman who is married to a spouse who doesn't share their faith. But at the same time, if you're in that situation, due to your own decision or due to circumstances, please don't feel condemned or ashamed or hopeless. This may be difficult, but it is a journey that involves blessing, both for you and your unbelieving spouse, as we will see. Let me just say that I am speaking as someone who is married to a believing wife. So what I've done this past week, besides studying the text, is to read a number of articles from men and women who have been or who are in the very situation that Peter addresses. As I said, I'm hoping to come back to these verses more generally next time. So out of necessity, we won't be able to look at everything today. And my main emphasis, I think, is going to be on wives who have unbelieving husbands. I want us to begin by looking at two attitudes that Peter speaks about in this passage. Firstly, Peter has something to say about calling. And there are two aspects to this. Firstly, whether you have a believing spouse or an unbelieving spouse, your calling is to help God in the process of making them more like the Lord Jesus. As we saw last time, the purpose of marriage is to make our marriage partner holy. Verse 2. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And in verse 7, Peter tells husbands to treat their unbelieving wives as heirs together with you of the gracious gift of life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul expands this idea and he says this, 
If a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is they are holy. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, we mustn't get the idea that a husband or wife or children are saved because of the faith of their believing marriage partner or parent. All it means is that the unbelieving spouse has an opportunity to come to faith because of the witness of their believing marriage partner. So this is your calling, no matter what the exact state of your marriage, you are in this marriage to sanctify your spouse. The second aspect of our calling, though, is this. We looked at it a few weeks ago. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are specifically called to patient endurance in suffering. Peter uses the phrase, to this you were called, twice in these verses, and on both occasions it's in the context of patient endurance in suffering. Verse 21 is the key verse here. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then again in verse 9 of chapter 3, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with a blessing, because to this you were called. So part of our calling as Christians involves patient endurance in suffering, which may include the suffering that comes through living in a marriage that is less than ideal. Now, let me quickly say what I do not mean here. I emphatically do not mean that if your husband is beating you, that you should just sit quietly and allow it. Sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for your husband is to call the police on him. If you are in that situation, you need to get out and you need to get help. You should let someone in the church know if you are being sexually or physically or emotionally abused by your marriage partner. But what I do mean is that part of being a Christian involves enduring difficulty, not just getting out of it. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 a moment ago. Let me read some more verses from that same chapter. Paul says this, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. And then besides marital status, Paul mentions not wanting to change your race from Jew to Gentile or vice versa, and not even wanting to change your class from slave to free. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. 
although if you can gain your freedom, do so. And then he repeats, Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This means then that if you become a Christian and your wife does not, you shouldn't divorce her and find a Christian wife. Part of your calling means that you have to endure the difficulty of living with someone who doesn't know and love the Lord. And that flies in the face of some popular Christian teaching that suggests that God always wants you to be happy all of the time. God is not so much interested in our happiness as he is in our holiness. It's quite possible to love Jesus with all my heart and have a difficult marriage. This sense of calling, then, can be very helpful to us when we find ourselves in any difficult situation, really, but particularly in a difficult marriage. One lady who's married to an unbelieving husband puts it this way, God has placed each of us in a particular situation in which we can show aspects of his sustaining grace in a way that no one else can. This is a weighty honour. We must pursue obedience to God in our present circumstance even while petitioning God for a change of circumstance. There's the balance, I believe. I can pray for a change of circumstances, which God may or may not grant, but I must pursue obedience to God in whatever circumstances I find myself in at present. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot, who was one of seven missionaries killed by Alka Indians in Ecuador. After her husband's death, Elizabeth went back to Ecuador and spent two years as a missionary to the very tribe members who'd killed her husband. She was a remarkable woman. On one occasion, she said these words, This job has been given to me to do. Therefore, it is a gift. Therefore, it is a privilege. Therefore, it is an offering I may make to God. Therefore, it is to be done gladly if it is done for him. Here, not somewhere else, I may learn God's way. In this job, not in some other, God looks for faithfulness. Which leads us to the second point. Wives under pressure have to entrust themselves and their situation into God's hands. In verse 5, Peter speaks about the holy woman of the past who put their hope in God. And when we do that, we're following the example of Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 23, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And remember, we said that the Greek text doesn't have the word himself. It just says he entrusted to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself, his enemies and the entire situation into God's hands. Peter also uses the example of Sarah in these verses, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. We'll come back to some of the details of this verse next time, but what is Peter saying here? Well, you may remember that Sarah had a husband who didn't always act in a godly manner, 
there are two occasions in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20 where Abraham is living in a foreign country and he's worried that the people are going to kill him and take his wife because she is so beautiful. And so he passes Sarah off as his sister. Sarah must have been quite a looker because she's 90 years old at this stage. And Sarah ends up first in the royal harem of Egypt and then almost in the bedchamber of King Abimelech of Gerah, And what Sarah did in that situation was to put her hope and trust in God, even in the difficult situation, and not give way to fear. Verses 13 and 14, Peter says to all believers, Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. One lady who was married to an unbelieving husband put it this way, I had to learn to fight the fear of losing my marriage with a greater fear of God. It might sound strange to fight fear with fear, but the more I looked to God as my mighty sovereign, the less I worried about future outcomes. To be sure, there were many dark days of shaky trust, failure to love and tormenting anxiety, but God strengthened me, and in obeying him, there was overwhelming peace. And please see that patient, non-retaliatory endurance comes with a blessing. Peter says in verse 14, Even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Again, let me emphasize, I'm not speaking here about physical or emotional or sexual abuse in your marriage. That's not behavior that we have to put up with or endure. That's a terrible misuse of scripture. But following Jesus, even in difficult circumstances, results in blessing and joy. Part of trusting God also includes entrusting your spouse to God. This doesn't mean that we don't do anything. We'll look at a variety of things that Peter says we are to do in a moment. But it does mean that it's not all up to us which I think can bring us a great sense of confidence and a sense of relief. This in turn can actually be a big help in the relationship. One man who had an unbelieving wife put it this way, I couldn't give her eyes to see Jesus for who he is. I couldn't get inside her heart and breathe life into it. I couldn't make a dead soul live. I mistook love your wife as Christ loves the church for do the work only Christ can do. And that led to a lot of conflict because I was trying to fix her soul instead of representing Jesus' love and letting the Holy Spirit do the work. Which brings us to the practical things that Christian wives and husbands are to do. Verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Some of you may be familiar with the name Lee Strobel. Lee was an investigative newspaper reporter and atheist, and in one of his books he writes this, My wife Leslie stunned me in the autumn of 1979 by announcing that she'd become a Christian. I rolled my eyes and braced for the worst, feeling like the victim of a scam. I'd married one Leslie, 
the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared she was going to turn into some sort of sexually repressed prude who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. Instead, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated, by the fundamental changes in her character, her integrity, and her personal confidence. Eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle but significant shifts in my wife's attitudes, so I launched an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity. As a result of that investigation, Lee became a Christian, and he also wrote a book called The Case for Christ, outlining the evidence for Christianity. It's also been made into a film, and it's brought many to faith in Christ. What are some of the things that Peter urges on wives with unbelieving husbands? Firstly, he speaks about winning them over without words. I don't think that we need to take that completely literally, because Peter says in verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If the wife's husband is going to be won over, he's going to need the gospel. So at some stage, she's going to have to say something. But one pastor explains Peter's words in this way. Don't harangue him. Don't nag him. Don't preach at him. But in all humility and all lowliness, somewhere along the line, lay your heart bare before this man as to where you stand and why you're there. Not in a preachy way but in a testimonial way. This is why I love Jesus. I believe that loving Jesus will help me love you better. So please don't think that when I put him first, I'm loving you worse. It doesn't work that way. I will love you better for loving him more. Peter is writing into a context where wives weren't expected to teach their husbands and I think that the main implication is that it's the wife's lifestyle rather than her words that is most important. If you think about it, that's true of all of us. It's not how much we say we love Jesus that counts, but rather how we live out our Christian life before others. Secondly, Peter says that Christian wives are to be submissive to their husbands We'll come back to this term again in another sermon, but for the purposes of today, let's define submissiveness as giving up your own preferences and needs for the sake of the needs and preferences of someone else. In other words, as we saw last week, after God, your husband or your wife has to be your most important priority. Lee Strobel describes how Leslie did this for him while he was not a Christian. Over time, I saw that Leslie's devotion to Christ actually reinforced her love for me and made her want to strengthen our bond. Instead of ignoring me in favor of Christ, church, and her Christian friends, Leslie redoubled her efforts to be a caring, thoughtful spouse. I could see that I was still the most important person in her life, just as she was in mine. Our different beliefs didn't mean we had to stop relating in other areas. We were married because we enjoyed each other's company and shared a lot of mutual interests. Leslie made sure that we were able to continue pursuing those other things together, and though she desperately wanted me to recognize my need for Christ, she continued to love me as her partner, 
not as her project. Just on a practical note, one wife spoke about trying to be involved in Bible studies and small groups during the mornings when her husband was at work so that it didn't take away from the time she spent with her husband. But submission doesn't mean that a wife has to go along with everything her unbelieving husband demands of her. The ladies to whom Peter is writing have already taken the immensely independent step of trusting in Jesus rather than trusting in the gods of their husbands. Not only that, but Peter urges wives to live in all purity and reverence. So they're not to go along with everything that would be ungodly or sinful. Again, let me quote from a lady who's actually in this situation. She says, It's never going to be black and white. Submitting to an unbelieving husband is a balancing act. Sometimes you have to weigh the command to submit against the other commands of Scripture. You must not submit, for example, if he asks you to sin. Like the disciples, you must obey God rather than man. Sometimes it might be necessary to ask for help from someone older or wiser to figure out how to handle a particular agonizing ambiguity. It's been my experience that sometimes they can see a third option, something between obey and disobey, that I might miss. If you must refuse to obey your husband in some matter, make sure he knows why and that it breaks your heart to do so. Note that if you defer to him ninety-nine times and regretfully and respectfully refuse on the hundredth, he's much more likely to understand, rather than if you have a pattern of only submitting if you happen to agree with him anyway. Thirdly, Peter urges Christian wives and husbands not to sin. We've just spoken about not going along with an unbelieving partner's sin, but it's also possible to sin against our unbelieving spouse. I think this is covered in verses 8 and 9, where Peter says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. We don't have time to look at this in detail, but in some of the articles I read this week, Christian wives spoke about the dangers of blaming their unbelieving husbands for everything wrong in their marriage, gossiping about him to church members, making him feel inferior through an attitude of spiritual arrogance, harboring a grudge or nursing feelings of self-pity, blaming his behaviours and addictions for their own growing callousness, in the relationship. And finally, wives and husbands who have unbelieving spouses can pray. In verse 7, Peter speaks about allowing nothing to hinder your prayers. One writer says this, Prayer is powerful, and it always brings results. Sometimes God uses prayer to change our circumstances, and sometimes he uses prayer to simply change our perspective about our circumstances. Pray for your spouse daily. You might be the only person in their life who is praying for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would help you to love them selflessly. Pray that God would give you strength, grace and encouragement on those days you feel alone in your marriage. 
Whether we have an unbelieving spouse or a believing spouse, prayer is something that we should be engaged in. We've been speaking quite a lot today about the difficulties involved in having an unbelieving spouse, and I don't want you to get the impression that that kind of marriage is ongoing sorrow. And so as we close, let me end with a quote from a delightful lady who describes how she repented of trying to fix her husband and simply tried to love him while living out her Christian faith in front of him. She says this, I had developed a bad habit of fantasizing about what it would be like to be married to a believer. I didn't think small forest animals would come and help me make the bed in the morning as birds sang sweetly in the background, but it was almost that bad. No husband could live up to the fantasy I created, and I'm sure I conveyed this air of disappointment to my husband. I blamed him for my lack of sanctification instead of taking responsibility for my own spiritual growth. I focused on what I couldn't do in the church rather than what I could do. I had a friend whose Christian marriage I envied. They usually sat in front of me in church, and he always put his arm around her. They were so sweet together. And then he had an affair. It woke me up to the blessing that my husband was to my life. I began actively looking for some things about him for which I could thank God, and God showed me many blessings he'd given me through my hard-working, dependable husband. As a result of this new awareness, I started saying thank you both to my husband and to God for many of the little blessings I received. The more I did this, the more happiness I found in life. It is fine and good to have a happy marriage to an unbeliever and to enjoy your husband, it's not more spiritual to be miserable. My marriage is not an affliction. I love my husband. The pain I feel knowing that he is lost is the affliction. Let me explain what it's like. We laugh together. We enjoy being together. We love our kids and have jokes together that no one else in the world would understand. We love old movies and hole-in-the-wall diners. He saves puns for me when he hears them at work, and I always bring him home half my piece of cake when we have a party at church. Well, sometimes I take two pieces and bring him one of those. We do have areas of conflict, but many more areas of agreement. Just like any marriage, there are hard days and hard seasons. Our values are different. Sometimes there are agonizing ambiguities that hurt my soul, and my faith sometimes embarrasses him and makes him feel judged. It's not all butterflies and lollipops. But I know from experience that women married to unbelievers can learn to be content in this imperfect circumstance, all the while longing for the circumstance to change. I think the spiritually single life verse must be Romans 12.12. 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Amen.